0: steal a music stand i promise i'll take care of it ever, whoever's using it good morning how's everyone good to see you uh, thank you Kat, for hosting thank you band it was good to see connor up there well done so yeah let me uh get situated Oop. sneak peek My name's Patrick, if you don't know who I am. I'm the guy that Dustin was talking about, and thankfully I wasn't in the room while he was talking about me. Um, But uh, I'm excited to be here at Hope City, uh, uh, excited to continue to explore uh, church planting uh, with you all here, and look forward to many conversations to come. Within the uh, tradition of Celtic spirituality, there's a concept known as thin spaces or thin places. Perhaps you've heard of it. This was a belief that there is a veil that separates the earthly from the heavenly, the physical from the spiritual. It was believed that there were certain places in which this veil was thinner than others, such that being there, one could feel closer to the divine, perhaps experience the reality that lies behind the veil itself. Such places have become pilgrimage sites to which many have gone, longing to experience a glimpse at a deeper, grander, even truer reality from what day to day life gives. Whether one was drawn out of curiosity for the otherworldly, a desire to see and experience the divine and the sublime, or deep longings for hope that this world is not all that there is, I think it points to something that is common in many of us, if not all of us. It may not be something we experience every day, distracted by the busyness of daily tasks, work, childcare, completing da- daily errands, but in certain moments, perhaps when we sit alone, write in a journal, go for a hike. Perhaps when we see a beautiful cathedral or when we're out in nature observing God's creation. Perhaps there's a moment when you're watching a film in which you feel as though the veil is thin, but for a moment. For those who know the Lord of the Rings, I think of this when There's those scenes in which it seems like there's no hope that remains, but Gandalf or the eagles break into the scene. Moments like this, Tolkien actually coined a word for. Eucatastrophe. Don't worry, there won't be a quiz. Eucatastrophe, it's it's this idea of a catastrophe of the good when hope breaks in. I think we all have moments in which, if we are honest with our inner self, we feel as though this earthly world is not all that there is. We long for the curtain to be pulled back, for a chance to glimpse, if but for a moment, at the divine truth behind it all God's eye view, if you will. It is this view that we get in Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism. The heavens are opened, the curtain is pulled back, the veil between the earthly and the heavenly is torn open, and we glimpse at the ultimate reality of who Jesus is through God's eyes. And so let's take a peek together and imagine for a moment as Michael comes to read this account for for us from the Bible. You can grab the blue Bibles in front of you. Um, they're on the chairs. You can turn to page 967, and we'll start uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. That's the big three, the little 11. Thank you.
1: Matthew 3, verses 11 to 17. This is John speaking. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And a light man on him. And a voice from heaven said. This is my son. Whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Thank you Michael.
0: What a, what a beautiful picture that is. The heavens open. This curtain on human history is pulled back. The Spirit of God descends and God speaks, saying, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Before Jesus begins his public ministry, God doesn't want us to miss out on who Jesus is. Jesus is not merely a prophet or a teacher. Jesus is the very Son of God in whom God takes great delight. We'll return to this later, but first, let's take a moment to retrace our steps that led up to this moment. Matt spoke to us last week um, about a man named John, a prophet who carried God's message to the people of Israel. The message, repent for the kingdom of God is near. We saw last week that repentance is a, a turning around, turning from a path or a way of living that you now agree is wrong, and turning to a way that you now agree is right. John is baptizing people for repentance. That is, he is performing a ritual, a practice, in which people will go down into the water of the Jordan and come out as a way of identifying with John, showing that they had chosen to turn away from their own way and turn to God's. It is now that Jesus re enters the scene. The last we saw him, he was a child in Nazareth, a town in Galilee in the northern part of what we know as Israel. You'll see it up there if you have good enough eyes. From Nazareth, Jesus takes a journey to the Jordan River where John is baptizing his followers. It might have looked something like this minus the satin half. Although I'm sure Jesus knew what Google would have said. Jesus goes with the express purpose of being baptized by John. But why? Isn't John's baptism a baptism for repentance? If, as we read in the Bible, Jesus is the one who had no sin, then why be baptized by John? John seems to recognize this mismatch. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? How can the lesser baptize the greater? How can the one who should be the student pretend to be the teacher of the very one who is the greatest of all teachers? How could John Call Jesus to repentance when Jesus is already on the path in which he is calling all people to turn to. It is not Jesus who needs to change course, but all others who need to turn to him. Jesus replies to John. Let it be so. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. What does it mean for Jesus to be baptized by John? We can know for sure that this was a matter of obedience for Jesus. Jesus believed that this was something that was proper to do, whatever it means to fulfill all righteousness. John trusted Jesus. He knew that Jesus knew better than him. I don't think John understood the why of Jesus' baptism, but he knew the who. John knew who was asking him to do this in obedience. And so John said, yes. But what is the why for Jesus' baptism? Let's consider two things. First, I think there's a passing of a baton. John was not preparing the way for himself. John was preparing the way for Jesus. John was the last in a line of a long series of prophets calling Israel to repentance, calling them to get ready for who Jesus is and for what he would do. Like the passing of the mantle in the Old Testament from Elijah to Elisha, Jesus comes behind John, taking it up upon himself to complete the mission. Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited promised one of God, the promised king, who would save his people from their sins, offering forgiveness and restoring fellowship, union with God. I see a passing of a baton in Jesus' baptism but I think there's a more significant reason at play as well. Jesus is being baptized to identify, not simply with John and his mission, but with us. Track with me for a moment. Consider the important events that Matthew is sharing with us up until this point in the life of Jesus. Key moments mimic important moments in the history of Israel. Dustin spoke two weeks ago about Mary and Joseph fleeing with Jesus to Egypt. Matthew highlights the significance of this by quoting the prophet Hosea saying, out of Egypt I called my son. This is a big old flashing arrow. It's a sign pointing us to something. Matthew isn't simply telling us history for history's sake. Matthew is saying something about what Jesus has come to do. Israel, chosen by God, called to keep God's law, would go to Egypt to seek safety and provision. They'd return, leaving Egypt to go to the promised land, a symbol of God's favor, God's delight in his people. If. They would just trust and obey God. To enter the promised land, Israel would pass through the Jordan River, the same river in which John is baptizing his followers. Matthew's telling us something. Here comes Jesus, like Israel, called out of Egypt, going to pass through the waters of the Jordan. But Jesus' story would be different. Israel failed. Israel failed time and time again. Time and time again, God would call them to repentance. John is doing this as well. Israel's failure kept them from fully experiencing God's blessing. Could they ever live up to God's standard? Can we? The story isn't simply about Israel. It's about us as well. Israel failed time and time again. We fail time and time again. But Jesus, Jesus came to take up the task, to do what Israel could not do, what we cannot do ourselves, out of Egypt to the Jordan. Jesus goes to be baptized by John. Jesus is showing us that he will be the perfect Israel, the one in whom God's blessing and delight would be on full display. Like Israel, God demands our obedience. This may feel foreign to the modern Western independent mind, yet it makes sense if you think about it. If God is perfect, the very standard of that which is good, then to choose our own way over God's is simply to choose against the good God is right to demand our obedience to do anything less would be to be less than good it would be for God to be less than loving so where does this leave us do we look around and see how high others can jump take an average maybe lower it a little bit and then give ourselves a big old gold star for being good enough the answer is more radical than that. God says the standard is the same, but he provides someone else to jump for us. Jesus would be perfect on our behalf. As Paul writes, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus sees our failings and says, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. Baptism is about identifying. It's about identification. Jesus identifies with each and every one of us. When Jesus asks us to be baptized, he asks us To identify with him. Now here's the crazy bit. By turning to Jesus, by identifying with him, we receive the benefits, the blessing that he earned on our behalf. Jesus is baptized. The heavens open. That curtain is drawn back. We see the spirit of God descending like a dove and then we see a voice from heaven saying this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. Now what does it mean that the heavens opened? We we don't have to know exactly what this means to know what it means for us. It's a reminder It's at least a reminder that the world is not all that there is. That there's more than we can see, taste, touch, smell. It means that there is a God who has the final say about what is good and what is true. It is God who will render the final verdict. If I could speak to the skeptics in the room for a moment... You might be asking, why doesn't God simply open the heavens right here, right now for all of us to see? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm certainly not in a position to know the mind of God on that. But what it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that God hasn't made himself known. In history, in the prophecies of scripture, in the beauty of creation, in experiences and longings that cannot explain themselves, that cannot be truly explained by natural means. Can I ask you a question? I'm not saying you're refusing to believe. But I'm wondering if some here might be holding those curtains shut. The famous biologist Richard Lewontin once wrote, we cannot allow a divine, a divine foot in the door. If you're skeptical today, are you willing to allow the door to open a crack? There's a misconception that science has disproved God. In India, we see that some 80% of scientists believe in the divine. Perhaps it's the West that has made some bad assumptions. We like the predictable. We like things neat in a little box. How do you look at the world? Are you open to a bit of wonder? At a critical moment in my own life, during a time of doubt, my own perspective shifted. Sitting alone one day, lost in my thoughts as I often do, I was staring at the painting of a fish. It wasn't even that good of a painting. It was one of those like clownfish like Nemo. It was actually in like a locker room of a pool. But still, there was a kind of beauty there. Something clicked for me. I couldn't make sense of a world without God. A world in which I could experience a thing like beauty. The science behind vision and color does nothing to make the experience of beauty any less miraculous. The modern Western mind, at least, often confuses naming something with understanding it. We become blind to the miraculous in the mundane, in the everyday. I love how the 20th century author, G.K. Chesterton, once, once put it. He says, fairy tales make rivers run with wine only to make us remember for one wild moment that they run with water. How do you look at the world? Is God nowhere to be found or have we become blind to what is all, to what is all around us? Consider for a moment a new perspective or perhaps try a, a new place in which you may more easily see God at work in the world. The author Wendell Berry suggests that the Bible is best read outdoors. He writes, Whoever has considered the lilies of the field or the birds of the air and pondered the improbability of their existence in this warm world, within the cold and empty stellar distances, will hardly bulk at the turning of water into wine which was, after all, a very small miracle, we forget the greater and still-continuing miracle by which water with soil and sunlight is turned into grapes. Perhaps engage in new practices. God invites us to engage with him. He's a personal God. Start a conversation, and perhaps you'll come to see that He is real. That is my prayer for each and every one of you today. Let us return to the baptism of Jesus in the heavens opening. In the opening of the heavens, we see the judgment of God. But wait, isn't judgment a bad thing? No. It's just to to, to render what's due, to say what's true. And what's God's judgment here? This is my beloved son. This is my son whom I love in whom I am well pleased. Jesus identified with us so that by us identifying with him, God calls us sons and daughters. Those words to Jesus become true for us too. You see that John, the disciple of Jesus, wrote, to as many as believed on him, to them gave he the power, the ability to become sons of God. To his sons and daughters, God says, in them, in you, I am well pleased. This isn't because of anything we've done. This isn't because we've earned it. But it's because of what Jesus did for us. And check this out. The Old Testament prophet Zephaniah wrote to Israel, "The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves, He will delight. He will take great delight in you. In his love, He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing." I love that phrase there. He will rejoice over you with singing." Through Jesus, this is true for us. In Jesus, God rejoices over you with singing, saying, my child. This is what we celebrate in baptism. This is what is what is true for Jesus. And this is what becomes true for us. In a moment, we'll extend an open invitation to anyone here who is ready to be baptized to take that step of obedience to Jesus. We believe that baptism is a one-time thing for each individual, a display of our identification with Jesus. It's not what saves us, but it's a picture of what happens when we choose to follow Jesus. As we watch others get baptized, we're reminded of that daily call to faithfully follow Jesus. And don't miss this. It's to celebrate the fact that God rejoices over us with singing. As we baptize Krishna in a moment and any others who may be ready to be baptized today, I don't expect the heavens to literally open, though that would be really cool. But what I do know is that the heavens have opened. I know that God has declared over Krishna and over all who choose to follow Jesus, You are my sons. You are my daughters. In You, I am well pleased. Before baptizing at Hope City, we ask four questions. I'd like to ask these questions to everyone here today a kind of renewing of the vows, if you will, for the church. Here's the questions. And if you believe these, don't feel like you need to join in, but if you believe these, I would love to say these together. And so after I read each question, if we're together, if you believe these, if we could say, I do, and remember the commitment that we have made to each other and that we have made to God. So, church, do you recognize your need for a Savior? I do. Do you claim Jesus As your only Savior? I do. Do you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Master? I do. Do you wish to commit to the church of Jesus Christ? I do. Because of what Jesus did for you, what is true for him has become true for you. Over all those in Jesus here today, I say as the Father said to Jesus, you are God's beloved. In you, he is well-pleased. God rejoices over you with singing. And let's reflect upon that as we celebrate together what Jesus has made true for you. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to have a few people at the front. If you would like to be baptized this morning, there's time. You can come forward. Come forward and talk to one of us. Or if you have been baptized or just would like prayer, you're welcome to come forward too and we'll have some people here that would love to pray for you this morning. May we see the heavens open. Let's stand and let's sing a song